Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Pandemic is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash pandemic. How it began. For a hundred thousand years, the machine traveled in a straight line. The creators had launched it into space along with many others, countless others. The others also traveled in a straight line, but each one in a different direction. It wasn't long, relatively speaking, before the machine could no longer detect the others, before it could no longer detect the place from which it had come, before it could no longer detect the creators themselves. Alone, the machine traveled through the void. It would have flown in that same straight line for all eternity, were it not for a faint trace of electromagnetic radiation, known as a radio wave. Analysis was instant and definitive. The radio wave was not naturally occurring. It was artificial, proof of existence of a sentient race other than the creators. For the first time, the machine changed direction. It moved toward the source of this signal, so it could fulfill its sole purpose, find the species that generated the signal, then assist the creators in wiping that species from the face of existence. As it traveled, the machine detected more and more transmissions. It studied the signals, learned the languages, assigned meaning to the images. In doing so, the machine defined its target, a race of small, hairless bipeds that lived on a blue planet orbiting a yellow star. Some 25 years ago, the machine reached Earth. Stored inside the machine were 18 small probes. Each probe was about the size of a soda can, and each probe could cast over a billion tiny seeds adrift on the winds. If these seeds landed on a sentient individual, a host, they could analyze the individual's composition and send that information back to the machine. The machine could also send information to these seeds, in particular, how to make the seeds hijack the host's biological processes. At least, that was the theory. The first six attempts failed altogether. The seventh successfully produced minor changes in the hosts, but did not reach the level of modification necessary for the machine to complete its mission. With each successive attempt, the probe gained more and more knowledge about the host's biology. By the twelfth attempt, the machine could reprogram the host's bodies to produce new organisms. The goal of those organisms, build a massive structure, a gate, that would allow the creators to bend the laws of physics, to instantly deliver an army directly to the blue planet. But the hosts fought back. They found the organisms and destroyed them. The machine kept trying. Each attempt, however, cost another irreplaceable probe. Fourteen. Fifteen. Sixteen. Every attempt involved a new strategy, and yet the hosts always found a way to win. On the seventeenth attempt, the hosts discovered the machine. They gave it a name, the orbital, and once again the hosts defeated the orbital's efforts. The orbital had no backup, no help, no resupply. Seventeen attempts, seventeen failures. The eighteenth attempt was the machine's final chance to stop the hosts. Failure meant the hosts would have hundreds of years, perhaps thousands, to improve their technology. They had already made feeble yet successful attempts at escaping their planet. If the hosts developed far enough, 
they might reach the stars. And if they did someday, they might encounter the creators and possibly destroy the creators. That was the very reason for which the orbital had been built, to find burgeoning races and help the creators eliminate them before they could become a threat. During the first 17 tries, the orbital had come very close to success. That meant some of the earlier strategies were worth replicating. And yet in the end, each of those strategies had failed, which meant the orbital also had to try something new, had to feed all its collected data into this last-ditch attempt. No more gates, no more efforts to conquer. For the 18th and final probe, the orbital's goal became singular, simple, and succinct. Extinction. But before the orbital could launch that probe, the hosts attacked. Over a hundred centuries of existence came to a brutal end as dozens of high-velocity depleted uranium ball bearings tore the machine to pieces. Pieces that splashed into Lake Michigan. The 18th probe, however, remained intact. 900 feet below Lake Michigan's surface, this soda can-sized object hit the lake bed and kicked up a puffing cloud of loose sediment. As the object sank into the muck, the sediment settled around and on top of it, making it invisible to the naked eye. The U.S. government searched for the orbital's wreckage. Many pieces were found. The soda can-sized object, however, a tiny speck of alien material resting somewhere among 22,400 square miles of lake bottom, remained undiscovered, undetected, until now. Book One the Big Water. Chapter One. Day One. The Blue Triangle. Candace Walker stared at the tiny cone of hissing blue flame. She couldn't do it. She had to do it. Her chest trembled with the held back sobs. No more. No more pain. Please, God, no more. Pain couldn't stop her. Not now. She couldn't let that happen. She had to get out, had to make it to the surface. She had to see Amy again. Candace looked at her right arm, still not quite able to believe what was there, or rather, what wasn't there. No hand, no forearm, just a khaki nylon mesh belt knotted tight around the ragged stump that ended a few inches below her elbow. The knot's pressure made the arm feel almost numb. Almost. The belt's end stuck up like the rigor's stiff, stubby tongue of a dead animal, flopping each time she moved. She again looked at the acetylene torch's steady flame, a translucent blue triangle filled with a beautiful light that promised pure agony. I can't let them get me again. Do it now, Candy. Do it or die. When the pain came, she couldn't let herself scream. If she did, they'd find her. Candace lowered the flame to her flesh. The blue jewel flared and splashed, blackening the dangling scraps of skin and arm meat, shriveling them away to cindered crisps of nothing. Her head tilted back, her eyes squeezed shut, her world shrank to a searing supernova point of suffering. Before she knew what she was doing, she'd pulled the flame away. Candace blinked madly, trying to come back to the now, trying to clear the tears, the bubbling stump continued to scream. Do it so you can see your wife again. Her mouth filled with blood. She'd bitten through her cheek. Candace looked at her shredded arm, gathered the last grains of strength that remained in her soul. She had to keep her eyes open, 
Had to watch her arm, or she'd bleed out right here. See your job and do it, Lieutenant. Do it! Candace lifted her severed arm, opened her mouth, and bit down hard on the belt's flopping end. She tasted nylon and blood. She pulled the belt tight, then brought the blue jewel forward. Flames skittered, seemed to bounce away at strange hard angles. The sound of sizzling meat rang in her ears, partnering with a hideous scent of seared pork that made her gag, twisted her stomach like a wrung-out towel. This time she didn't look away. Blood boiled and popped, skin bubbled and blackened, bone charred. And the smell, oh Jesus, that smell. She could taste the smoke. She heard grunts. She heard a steady, low growl, the sound of an animal fighting to chew its foot free from the iron-toothed trap. The torch slid from her hand, clattered against the metal deck. The blue jewel continued to breathe out its hateful hiss. She pulled the scorched stump close to her chest. Her head rolled back in a silent cry. How much more? How much more do I have to take? Candace forced herself to look at the charred mess that had once been connected to a hand. A hand that could draw and paint. A hand that had almost sent her to Arizona State to study art before she made the choice to serve her country. A hand that had touched her wife so many times. Blisters swelled. Her flesh steamed like a freshly served steak, but the bleeding had stopped. Drops of red oozed up through the blackened stump's many cracks and crisp edges. Her right hand was gone, so why did her missing fingers still feel the fire? With her remaining hand, she reached inside her uniform shirt, felt her belly where she'd hidden her drawings, still there. Candace reached for the door that would take her out of the submarine's tiny steel-walled trash disposal unit. She couldn't hide here forever. She held her breath, knowing that just lifting the TDU door's lever would make noise, might bring her shipmates. She closed her eyes again, searching for the strength to go on. Amy, I will never quit. They won't get me. They're all out to get me. They're all trying to murder me. Candace slowly lifted the lever. The door opened to a dark passageway, empty save for the few wisps of smoke that filtered in from the fire she'd set in the engine room. The gray bulkheads, piping, and electrical conduit looked no different than they had for all the months she'd served here. Everything was the same. Everything was different. To her right, the wardroom where she had eaten countless meals. To her left, the crew's mess, pitch black, all the lights smashed and broken. Candace reached to the small of her back, drew her pistol. She'd shot two men dead. How many additional crew had she killed with her act of sabotage? She wished the answer was all of them. She had to try to reach the dry deck shelter. The surface. She had to get to the surface. Sweating, shivering, and bleeding, Candace stepped out of the TDU. She almost slipped when a cracking voice sounded over the intercom. This is the... The captain. Candace froze as if he was actually in the passageway with her, as if he could see her. It was his voice, familiar from so many months, yet not his at the same time. He fought to get the words out. Man, battle stations, torpedo. I say again, man. Man, battle stations, torpedo. That, that is all. She flinched at the harsh click of the PA shutting off. 
torpedo launch. Against who? There wasn't an enemy out there. Wasn't anyone at all except for... No. No! She disabled the sub's ability to escape. She hadn't disabled its ability to fight. Escape. They were coming for her. She had to escape. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Candace held her severed arm close to her chest. Her right shoulder shrugged up almost to her ear. She moved down the passageway, waiting for each step to bring one of her tormentors running. If she could get to the forward escape trunk hatch that led to the dry deck shelter... If she could get into one of the SEIE suits, then she could make it to the surface. The dry deck shelter was amidships, just aft of the control room and attack center. To reach it, she would have to walk through the crew's mess, past all the dead bodies. And some of them, she knew, weren't all the way dead. Candace felt a vibration under her feet, the torpedo tubes flooding, the final step before launch. Only seconds until Mark 48 ad caps shot out at 55 knots, heading for ships that had no idea what was coming. She walked into the darkness of the crew's mess. An aisle ran down the center. Small, four-person booths lined either side. In those booths, she could make out lumpy shadows, the still forms of corpses, the crimson shade of dried blood. This was where they had tried to bring her. A dim light filtered in from up ahead, shone down from the open overhead escape trunk hatch. Her eyes adjusted enough to make out something on the ground just in front of her. A severed head. And she recognized it. Bobby Biltmore, an ensign from Kansas. Congrats, Bobby. At least you're actually dead. She stepped over the head and kept moving through the aisle, waiting for one of the corpses to rise up and grab her, pull her under a table, 
do to her what they'd done to the others. The smell of rot, fighting for dominance against the scent of her own cooked flesh. Only a few more feet to go. The shadows seemed to move, to take shape and reach out for her. Her hand tightened on the pistol's grip, squeezed hard enough to somehow force back the scream building in her chest and throat. Candace Walker felt another vibration. Fish in the water. Torpedo launch. The targets wouldn't just sit there. They would fire back. That meant the Los Angeles only had minutes to live. She focused on the light ahead. A ladder led up to the escape trunk hatch. The ladder usually hung from the brackets on an adjacent bulkhead. Someone had connected it. Candace reached the ladder and started up, her only hand holding the gun, using her elbow and smoldering stump to keep her balance as exhausted legs pushed her higher. She climbed up into the cylindrical escape trunk, empty, thank God. At five feet in diameter, there wasn't much space, but she didn't care. Salvation lay one more ladder up, one more hatch up into the dry deck shelter. That hatch, too, was already open. She stayed very still. She saw someone walk by the hatch. She saw a face, a flash of color. Wicked Charlie Petrovsky. He was wearing a bright red SEIE suit, submarine escape immersion equipment. Candace Walker's pain didn't vanish, but it took a back seat to the rage that engulfed her. Was Charlie like her, or was he like them? Either way, it didn't matter. She needed that suit. The sub vibrated again. Another torpedo had just launched. It wasn't fair. It wasn't fair. She'd done more than anyone could ask. She wanted to live. Candace sniffed once, tightened her grip on the pistol, then quietly started up the ladder. Chapter 2 Wicked Charlie Petrovsky Wicked Charlie Petrovsky came too. He lay on the floor of the dry deck shelter, bleeding from a bullet lodged in his neck. He kept his eyes closed, didn't make any noise. He could hear her moving around nearby. Candace Walker, the woman who had shot him. Charlie was a guitar player. That was why he started calling himself Wicked Charlie, because he was wicked awesome on the sixth string. He'd known it was kind of douchey to give himself a nickname, but everyone liked him and he could flat-out shred on his vintage Kramer, so the moniker stuck. None of that mattered anymore, though, because he knew he'd never play another note. So cold. His eyes fluttered open to a view of Benny Addison. Benny's eyes were also open, but they weren't seeing anything, because Benny Addison had an exit wound above his left eye. Charlie heard footsteps, heard the zwip-zwip sound of someone walking while wearing thick synthetic fabric, she was somewhere behind him. The DDS was a squashed metal tube some 35 feet long, but only 5 feet wide. She'd have to step over him to reach the rounded door that led into the small decon chamber. The divers used it to clean themselves up after returning from a search, to make sure they didn't bring any of the outside in. The sound came closer. Then feet stepped down in front of his face, right, then left, both encased in the SEIE suit's bright red watertight boots. He heard muffled crying coming from inside the sealed hood. Charlie stayed very still. If he moved, she would shoot him again. Couldn't risk that. He was on a mission from God. He couldn't complete God's work if he was dead. He didn't dare to look up, but he knew what she was doing. 
opening the door so she could step through, close it behind her, then flood the decon chamber. Once that chamber flooded, she could exit it and enter the water. She was heading for the surface. That was wrong. Charlie was supposed to be the one heading to the surface. God said so. God told him where to go and what to do when he got there. Wicked Charlie Petrovsky would not fail God. Candace stepped into the decon chamber. The heavy door clanged shut behind her. Charlie waited until he heard the door wheels spin, sealing the chamber tight. He pushed himself up on his hip. He felt his own blood coursing down his shoulder. He pressed a hand hard against his neck. He didn't have long to live, he knew that. That he'd survived at all was a miracle, the hand of God obvious and undeniable. Charlie tried to stand. He could not. One hand on the cold deck, the other pressed against his bleeding neck, one foot pushing him along. Charlie crawled toward a life vest hanging from a bulkhead. He awkwardly reached it, slid first one arm through, then his head. His shivering, blood-covered hands fumbled with the straps. Would God be mad at him? The answer came immediately. He heard a whoomp that shook the air a split second before the DDS's starboard bulkhead ripped inward. A hammer blow of jagged metal tore into him, as did a simultaneous blast of high-pressure water that slammed him against the far wall, shattering bones on impact. Not that Charlie felt it. He would never feel anything ever again. The orbital had watched. The orbital had learned. Its first infection vector had been rather simple in concept. Spores that floated on the air, released by the orbital from its position some 40 miles above the Earth. Those spores hijacked the host's stem cells, reprogrammed them, turned them into microscopic factories. The factories punched out parts that self-assembled into triangles. Left unchecked, those triangles grew into hatchlings. The shotgun approach of a high-altitude release meant that most spores were wasted. They blew into areas of low population, got stuck on the ground, or simply fell into wet areas where they crumbled into bits of nothing. When spores did land on a host, they worked well, but a hatchling couldn't make more hatchlings. Nor could a hatchling spread the contagion by infecting additional human hosts. So, the orbital had changed strategy. It created a new design, the microscopic crawlers. Crawlers didn't hatch out of a host. Instead, they migrated into the host's brain, reshaped it, modified the host's instincts and behaviors. A crawler-infected host could make new crawlers to infect other hosts. Unlike the hatchlings, crawlers could reproduce. They could spread. The crawler method of contagion worked on a one-to-one -one basis, something a blonde-haired little girl named Chelsea Jewell had once referred to as smoochies. Smoochies created the capacity for an ever-expanding army of infected, but the method was slow. It didn't allow for continued mass infections to occur. It was Chelsea, not the orbital, who solved that problem. She created a third mode of transmission, turning her own mother into an obscenely bloated, gas-filled bag containing millions of spores. At some point, this swollen host would burst, scattering spores onto the wind like dandelion seeds carried by a summer breeze. The method was similar to the orbital's original infection strategy, but the swelling host was already on the ground. That meant better odds for a higher rate of transmission.
Each spore could infect a host with triangles or with crawlers, or it could turn that host into yet another gas bag that would burst and continue the cycle. Before the orbital was shot down, its logic processes determined it needed yet another mode of transmission, something that allowed for infection by touch alone, or, more important, by a vector that lingered in areas of high contact where multiple potential hosts could be exposed. As part of that strategy, the orbital also wanted one additional key element, that this new vector could continue to infect long after the host died. The swirling, churning, angry water spun wicked Charlie like an insect dropped into a boiling pot, sucked him out of the submarine and into the cold, silent black. His body seemed to hang for a moment, motionless, as if he were that same insect trapped in dark amber. Then the life vest began to rise, bringing Charlie along with it. His body floated toward the surface. Charlie's flame of life finally flickered out. His system shut down, a cascading effect that should have ended all activity in his body. Should have. His stem cells had been hijacked to produce crawlers. These microorganisms had instinctively followed his nervous system, using it as a pathway to reach his brain. There they had collected, altered their shape, and changed him. A very specific type of his stem cells, however, had been reprogrammed to make something never seen before the infection that overwhelmed the Los Angeles. That special type? Hematopoietic stem cells, also known as HSCs. HSCs have the ability to produce any type of blood cell. Charlie's HSCs had been hacked to produce one specific creation, a modification of something common throughout the human body, neutrophils, more commonly called white blood cells. White blood cells are a critical part of the immune system. They hunt down bacteria and other foreign matter, engulf and destroy the things that could hurt us. Neutrophils are amorphous, meaning they are without form. They move like amoebae, reaching out pseudopods, finding their path, then the rest of their shapeless bodies follow along. When Charlie's mutated neutrophils detected a severe lack of oxygen in his blood, the microorganisms reacted as they were programmed to react. They weren't sentient, at least not by themselves, but the lack of oxygen told them that their host was dead. Time to prepare to abandon ship. The orbital had watched humans respond to its infection iterations. It had measured humanity's reactions, its processes and equipment, and it had prepared a new strategy to deal with both. Charlie's neutrophils secreted chemicals that would harden into cysts, cysts to help protect them from the decomposition chain reaction that would soon turn Charlie's body to mush, protect them for a little while at least, hopefully long enough for a new host to come along. That done, the neutrophils turned off, entering a static state beyond even hibernation. From that moment on, only specific physical cues would cause the microscopic organisms to reactivate, to shed their cysts and seek out a new host. Those cues? Vibrations. Movement. Regular movement. The kind only exhibited by living beings. Until they detected such signals, the neutrophils would remain motionless, almost as dead as the tissue that surrounded them. You have been listening to Pandemic, 
book three of the Infected Trilogy by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.